Welcome to Detoxicity. By men, about men, for everyone. This is a podcast that's attempting to remix the narrative around masculinity, and I thank you for listening and supporting. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you check out the archive, which contains over 150 episodes. I'm always happy when someone reaches out with a friendly word or constructive criticism, so never hesitate to hit me up either via IG at DetoxPodGuy or via email, DetoxPod at gmail.com. You can also contact me if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you know someone who might be a good guest for the show. Uh, There's also a Detoxicity Patreon. Patrons get episodes one week early, plus I will mail you a cool DetoxPod fridge magnet. Go to bit.ly slash DetoxPod Plus to find out more. Oh, one more thing. Late last year, I completed my certification uh, courses, and I am now a life and relationship coach. I'm taking clients. Go to mike-joseph.com and book a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate you. As I've started to launch my coaching business, it's been really interesting to meet quite a few people who are also interested in doing the coaching thing, but come from a musical background. There seems to be a pretty natural progression from the music industry to doing life coaching, men's coaching, relationship coaching, executive coaching, whatever it is. And one of the people that has made that transition and is doing it and doing it and doing it well is Elliot Arenow. Uh, Elliot is my guest on this particular iteration of Detoxicity, and he runs a program called Minor Genius, and Minor, Minor Genius really helps guys uh, develop projects, businesses, and lifestyles that bring them joy, self-confidence, and abundance. Uh, He has a theory that people are not really truly fulfilled unless they are doing something creative, which I think has uh, quite a bit of validity, and you'll hear more about it as we converse over the course of this podcast. But Elliot has not just been a coach. Uh, He has been a TV host, a columnist for GQ. He has been a fashion editor. He has been a record store clerk. Shout out to all the record store uh, clerks out there. He's been a vintage clothing dealer. He talks a lot about everything from fashion, uh, which is something that I don't know a whole lot about, so appreciate him chiming in with his perspective, to the thing that we kind of both see is a little weird about men's groups in this day and age. So uh, we've got Elliot's got a lot to say. He does most of the talking. So check out his story. Everybody, here is Els. Thank you. Happy to be here. My name is Elliot Aronow. I'm the founder of Minor Genius and the editor of the Minor Genius Substack. I would say that my work involves helping men advance spiritually, creatively, and sartorially. So it's a little bit of a mix of outside game, inner work, some fashion, some music, some nervous system regulation, and a sort of funky bitches brew of all those various factors. And what I would really like to talk about tonight is... You know, we were just talking about this before we hit the recorded button, which is I want to talk about the stereotyping of men's work and how I think this is a very big problem for our community and really for any man who's interested in beginning or continuing a path of of self-discovery. Understood and agreed. Before we get to that, let's backtrack a little bit. Uh-huh. and talk about how you came into this work because you have a very long history of doing multiple things before you circled around and decided to make this your focus. So let's talk a little bit about Elliot's history. 
Yeah, well, I've been kind of an underground dude my whole life. I grew up kind of short and not super rich. And so I use coolness, for lack of a better term, as my main protective mechanism against a world that I did not understand and that often felt very, very scary for me. And so going back as far as I would say like nine years old, 10 years old, I was just super, super aware of fashion. I grew up in Staten Island in the late 80s, which was an amazing, amazing time for clothing and particularly New York fashion. And so I think my environment once I moved to New Jersey was so different for me, not just geographically, but culturally. I just felt like people there were very just kind of judgmental and uptight and just on a real different wave from what felt safe to me as a kid. And so I gravitated to fashion and music and comics and basically anything in the culture realm as a way to have that be my flavor of what I brought to the group. Like when you're a little kid, there's one guy that does the crazy stuff who's the daredevil. You got someone else who's a little bit more of the athlete. And so for me, my my shtick was really people look to me to be like, what kind of sneakers should I get or what tape should I buy with my allowance? And really my, (laughs) I guess you could say the first half of my adult career working in media as an editor at The Fader and Spin, different magazines was almost an offshoot of that vibe. And it was great. I moved to New York in 2002. I was in the underground scene at Rutgers in the punk scene and having no experience in music whatsoever, didn't even DJ at the radio station. I was like, I'm gonna go work for the Strokes. I, I literally opened up the LP and was like, okay, who's their manager? Emailed the manager, didn't get a response. I was like, who's their publicist? I didn't even really know what a publicist was, but I was like, I'm pretty good at talking. Let me go and do that. That is <laughs> so, a major chutzpah. Yeah, it's great. Sometimes it isn't, but a lot of the time I just claim it and dive in. And we'll get into the shadow side of that approach later on. But in that particular era, I just felt like the energy in New York, even you could feel it across the river where I was in New Jersey, finishing up school at Rutgers, you kind of knew that something was going on. Because I had hung out in the city a lot in the late 90s, and it kind of sucked. Like, (laughs) there wasn't, I mean, maybe at the level that I was in, the underground music scene, it was super healthy and fun and and cool. But there's not much of a quote-unquote career in working with bands at ABC No Rio. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So if you want to be in the real music business, there wasn't really too much popping in the late 90s. And so when all that stuff hit, Strokes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, The Walkman, I was like, man, I got to get here. I got to do this. And so that's really where my story begins, just mailing CDs for The Strokes. (laughs) Wow. Again, the chutzpah it takes for you to have no background in the music business at all and then look at the back of a record or a CD or whatever and be like, eh, I'm going to find out who these people are and who manages these people, and I'm going to get a job with them. That doesn't even happen anymore, I don't think. 
It was a very different time, not to put on my like 43-year-old hat, <laughs> but you really had to be in the streets, living it and doing it to make it happen for yourself. Like there was no keyboard warrior or clout chasing. The way that I got the internship with the Strokes was I, I literally cornered their publicist at a show. And I just said, I'm Elliot Aronow for New Jersey. And I've been writing you for three months to get an internship. What is it going to take for me to do this? And he's like, all right, man, talk to Dawn. She'll get you in the rotation. We'll figure it out. But I think coming out of the hardcore scene, no one really felt super inaccessible because all of my peers were in bands and making zines and booking shows. And it was a very vibrant community in New Brunswick. Still is. It's kind of a legendary town for basement shows and DIY culture. And so no one really felt out of reach because I had already been on tour with bands that I had really, really admired. There was this band, The Locust, who were kind of famous in the noise scene. And I just was a super fan. And I wound up becoming friends with them. And I went on a couple tours and sold some merch up and down the East Coast. And once I saw that it was possible to be in the orbit of artists that you admire, I think that was really the foundation for me for the rest of my career was just this idea that there's no separation. You can just cross over and walk into the movie. Right. Yeah. I, not that I interact with too many people who were the age now that we were then, but I, I think there's a much higher barrier to entry now than there might have been in, in the early 2000s. Well, I think people use gatekeeper now as a derogatory term, as like a nasty, oh, you gatekeeping. But yeah. I think what's way creepier is all these robots that you've never met are gatekeeping. At least when I found out who the Strokes publicist was, shout out to Stephen Trachtenbreit, wherever you may be, I appreciate you. I knew that he was the one guy who I could talk to to help advance this dream of mine. And I feel like now if you're online, I, I guess you could DM people and it works. I respond to people when they DM me questions about how to break into the business stuff. But back then, again, it was more centralized. And I don't necessarily think that that was a bad thing, especially if you wanted to get in, you know? Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I do think gatekeeper is used as a derogatory term a lot. I think we're living in an era where there is no gatekeeping, whereas maybe before we lived in an era where there is too much gatekeeping. And we, I think the ideal would be to find out where that middle ground is. Yeah. And also, we're about the same age. So a lot of our references all flow back to what I consider to be the essence, which is to say that period in the 80s when punk and hip hop and all these kind of underground things were really becoming a, a collective concern in a good way. You know, it wasn't just this marginal whatever stuff anymore. It was right there and it was happening. And by the time it was 98, there was still a lot of people 
connected to the essence that were available and accessible. And I think that that's a really beautiful tradition that we kind of lost. And Mm -hmm. I guess now as an older head, I try to think of what I'm doing as a continuation of that legacy, because the goal of corporations and control culture is always to disassociate the politics, the messiness, the interesting, funky stuff from the product, right? Thus, like 2000s hipster, which was really just indie, but without any of the politics. You didn't have to be interested in animal rights. You didn't have to be interested in gay issues. You didn't have to be interested in anything. You just had to wear a shirt. And that's why all that (laughs) stuff became so big was because it was divorced from the element. So to just kind of roll it back to the gatekeepers, I look at them a lot of the times as cultural historians. You know, I go out of my way to find people that are older than me and be like, put me on, teach me something. Right. What was that like back then? Right. Let's let's talk about fashion because it was the first thing that I noticed about you. And at the start of our conversation today, you talk about your childhood and how that was something that clicked in the uh, focus at a pretty young age. I mean, most, I shouldn't say most, thinking back to when I was a teenager, I think I had a fairly decent sense of what I wanted to look like. I don't think I had the resources to put it together the way that I wanted to put it together. And I also think that I didn't have the bravery to look the way I wanted to look and dress the way that I wanted to dress because I didn't want to put myself in a position where I was going to get singled out and talked about or anything like that. I wasn't secure enough in myself to be as individual as I wanted to be. When and where did that click for you? Or were you ever in a situation where you were like, eh, I want to look a certain way, I want to do a certain thing, but I, I don't know how that's going to go over, so I'm going to fall back? Yeah, well, I'm glad you named the resources thing because I think this has a lot to do, having unpacked it now over a decade and a half, two decades, I think this has a lot to do with my obsession with clothes was that I grew up the son of two teachers, not professors. My dad was a high school teacher at John Dewey High School, and my mom was a ESL teacher at Hudson County Community College. And in East Brunswick, where I went to high school and middle school in New Jersey, being a Jew also, my family did not read as wealthy within the spectrum of Jewish folk. And so I kind of got the, the worst of both worlds. Right. I had all the implications like, oh, you Jewish, you must be doshed up. One of those guys. (laughs) And because I was small, I also wore a lot of hand-me-downs from my friends and from their siblings. And so I think for me, the fashion was a desire to assert myself because, again, I was not strong. I'm 5'5 now. I was even smaller as an adolescent. And so my way of finding safety in the group was basically to be fly or at least an 11-year-old suburban Jewish kid's version (laughs) of what fly (laughs) looks like. But also, I think when it comes to fashion, style, whatever you want to call it, 
um, you either you have a love for it and you're drawn to it or you find it annoying and a distraction from what you really want to be doing. And I think that both are valid in their own way. I think it's a shame that something as beautiful as style, the musical end of architecture, as uh, Malcolm McLaren used to say, I love that quote. That's a great quote. The musical end of architecture. It's profound. But it's a shame that something is fun and something that can give people self-esteem and confidence and a sense of comfort in who they are is so poisoned by the industry and the kind of complex, no pun intended, around fashion. <laughs> I think maybe the reason that I've been able to be a voice for some people in that area is I'm like obsessed with style, but completely uninterested in fashion. And there's, it's great that you make that delineation, right? Because there is a difference. And as you're talking, I'm thinking back to my junior high, high school days, early nineties, when I didn't come from means, nobody I knew came from means there was a pride that some guys took in looking put together, like having the name brand shit and the fly shit, but it wasn't really thought of as fashion. It was thought of as style. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm glad that you made that delineation. And now as I'm thinking about it, it was athletic wear for the most part. It was either athletic wear or you were in Banana Republic fits or whatever. Yeah, you got the rayon shirt for the dance, go right. to Chess King, maybe. Yeah, you were wearing your Z Cavarici, or you were wearing cross colors, and you had the hip-hop gear on. But I think to really be invested in fashion at that age, you were considered, and again, I guess I'm kind of casting dispersions here, because this is really just the way that I saw things, either you were considered kind of snobby or full of yourself mm -hmm. or you were considered not masculine. It wasn't necessarily considered masculine to like look good unless you were specifically trying to impress a girl. Yeah. I came up against that a lot when I was in college because the hardcore scene is very sort of anti-fashion in the sense that you got your fatigues, your band t-shirt, and maybe some non-leather new balances. And so right. when I started looking like I was auditioning for The Who, people were like, oh, whatever, this guy, who's he think he is? That's whack. That's not punk. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yo, bro, the guy that quote unquote invented punk was a clothing retailer. <laughs> right. Right. By the name of Malcolm McLaren. That's right. Uh, or I should say maybe codified the look of punk. I don't think anyone invented punk. I think it was always out there in the ether and someone just claimed it. But yeah, man, I, I definitely see that even today, people look at you a little bit, you know what I mean? If you're a dude and you're in, in what I would consider mixed company, like people that are not in the scene and of the culture, and you're real excited about style or you just present yourself as someone who clearly cares about it a lot, you do stand out. 
I think I've learned to turn that into an advantage, but I can definitely feel the room sometimes when people are like, sometimes you just got to work a little bit harder to earn people's respect because they assume that if you're dressed smartly, that you're kind of an asshole, that you're (laughs) condescending or you think you're better than them. And again, it's a shame, man. I, I, I really think that style is for the claiming and that anyone has access to it and that dopeness should be expanded and not restricted. And I think that's what I don't like about the fashion industry is that it tries to restrict dopeness to this very narrow and corny and consumeristic lane. But when you walk the street, especially in New York, I mean, so many people look dope. They don't even realize it. You know what I mean? Like grown people, I mean, not grown like us, but 80-year-olds, some of them just look amazing. And it's no, you're absolutely right. And, and also, when I tune into why we, people like you and I and the folks listening, why we do this work, ultimately, I think what we are seeking is comfort in a world that has often felt kind of scary and uncomfortable. And for me, fashion has always been a way in which that's how I assert myself to feel comfortable. I want to walk into a place and look like I kind of belong there. There's definitely an element of personal branding where, again, it's like conflation. People are like, style, it means you have to dress in this particular thing and wear this shirt with this pants. But I feel like personal style is just being comfortable, regardless of attire, comfortable in your skin and then wearing what you feel like you want to represent yourself. Absolutely. And what's more powerful than that? I mean, we're the only animals that can pick our plumage. So why not take advantage of that? You know what I mean? And I, I think that the role play element of fashion is always something that I was excited about. Like when I would see the video for Pass the Mic and MCA is wearing a green champion hoodie with snowboard pants and snowboard boots, I was like, that is ill. I do not have a champion right now. And I don't think my mom's going to buy me one, but (laughs) that's who I wanted to be. And for me, music and fashion has just always sparked that synergistic thing where one feeds off the other. And I, I, I really have made it a big tenet of my life is just having fun exploring those two things. Right. It's funny you bring the Beastie Boys up, A, because I just reread the book for like the 50th time, and B, because it is really interesting that post-License to Ill, they created their own sartorial style. They weren't trying to look like anybody other than themselves, and I think that's super important. Well, again, I think when you're younger, all of us look for those cultural older brothers, Right. Sometimes it's athletes, sometimes it's bands. And I think for me and a, a lot of folks in my age bracket, and I'll say it, particularly suburban Jewish dudes, they were really <laughs> an archetype of, oh, someone who's like me can have a, a place in culture that's interesting and fun. And they're not trying to be anything that they weren't. They're just being themselves. And I I think 
That's a powerful message when you're at an age where you're trying so hard to find who am I? What am I doing? All this is so scary. (laughs) It is. I'm also wondering, I've talked about this to various extents with quite a few previous guests on the show, Mm -hmm. how much body positivity plays into your sartorial style. I, I think there are quite a few guys out there who are just not comfortable with the way that they look. And then how they react to dressing is an offshoot of that. Absolutely. And part of it, I would say, just from a technical level, is knowing what works for you. And that takes a little trial and error and is developed over years. But I feel like anyone, if they play to their passions, their dreams, their strengths, they can have a relationship with style where they're going to feel good about it. But I agree. It's very hard to dress up a person that you don't like. Yeah. That's a very succinct way of putting that. I mean, I did it for a long time, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I I have a lot of experience in that particular detail of life. Right. Right. So, Moving forward, you're doing the music thing. How do we jump from the strokes to minor genius? And I realize there's a lot of stuff in between there. Yeah. So the shortest version is that I would say around 2012, my star in terms of what I had worked very hard to cultivate in terms of being a visible creator in New York City was pretty sharply on the rise. I had hosted my own TV show and worked with a lot of bands and I put out a zine it got on the Wall Street Journal. And in the summer of 212, it's just like that scene in the movie where the guys steal the car and they're like, this is never going to end. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, watch out world. What's next? And That October, a music website that I had founded called Record Label, RCRDLBL, everyone was like, yo, we're going to get bought, but you got some equity here. You're going to make money. And instead, the whole thing got folded. And I had no job. And I spent a year reaching out to everybody and I couldn't get arrested. And I'm not talking about fancy jobs. I'm talking about, can I be a mid-level copywriter somewhere? And... That period was really the beginning of the dark night of the ego. And I was 32 at the time. And uh, I say this not to be extravagant or edgy, but just to say my 30s really almost killed me In, in terms of who I was. You know, that dude got incinerated downtown. Cool guy L's got incinerated. But the thing that was the scariest was that Nothing had really come in (laughs) to replace it for, I feel like, a good seven years. And so, like most people, that's when I got really interested in self-development because I was in so much pain. I was so confused. I had no money. I felt like I had no opportunities in life. Whatever cachet I had, it it really wasn't worth shit to me in terms of, putting food on my table and sustaining me. And 
that period through the cave of caves of caves of caves had me looking for answers. And that's when I became interested in men's work. That's where I became interested in metaphysics. And that experience through all that dysfunction, all that creative constipation, we'll get to that (laughs) later, by the way. My singular theory is that creative constipation, if you are an artist, is the root of, of the cause and root of all suffering and all unhappiness in our lives is having things that we want to express, but not being able to manifest them in the physical world. But sure, all that took me to some crazy places, man. And I started going to men's groups and maybe a little bit similarly to the same version of me that was like, I'm going to work for the strokes. I was like, I'm going to start a men's group in my living room and it's pay what you want. And I, I did that for about two and a half years, man. Every week I had between zero and seven, 10 dudes just posted up and we did some work. We explored some shadows and that was really how I cut my teeth being able to do the work that I do now with minor geniuses, all that shadow work, all that internal investigation was just like a punk show in someone's basement. It's like pay five bucks, pay 20 bucks, whatever. We're going to come here. I'm going to try and get out of whatever stuckness you're in. So that was most of my thirties was deep in the death of the ego. Very, very deep in the shadow, deep in dysfunction, deep in struggle. I was a pretty ferocious pothead from age 15 to 38. And so on New Year's Day, 2018, I just was like, it's over. And cold turkey. Cold turkey. And wow. Honestly, I, I probably spent two years just all that suppressed emotion, right? That you try to bury by getting stoned. I had to really sit with that and process all that. So a lot of my 30s were spent, I would say, dissolving and killing cool guy L's and (laughs) just going into the shadows and learning about what's in there. Some people get forced into those situations and they never come out. Yeah, that's a danger, man. And that's why I'm I'm really in favor of creation and IP and having projects because I know what it's like to be lost in your own ass of spirituality for years and just doing all the meditations, but not making anything. And so I think that as men, we have a bias towards action. And so we talked about this in the email and I'm more than happy to dig into this. I believe that a purely talk therapy model for men is kind of benign at best and very problematic at worst. I understand to an extent what you're saying, but I'm a a little curious to dig deeper here. Yeah. So my friend, Sean Hodgkiss, who's an amazing men's coach and leader to men, he and I started up 
basically an online men's group the first week of COVID. And I spent two and a half years really listening to men's fears and their concerns and what was going on in their marriages and in their professional lives. And while I do believe that accessing your emotional availability is key 100% and something that most of us need to work on because we don't have any models for that coming up. I do believe that simply talking about what's going on in your life, but not being able to actualize it into a song, a painting, a t-shirt, a zine, a book of short stories, a radio show, a podcast is, is a recipe for misery because that energy needs to be expressed into form in order to fulfill its destiny, right? And like I was saying before, in regards to creative constipation, all these dudes that came to the men's groups were great guys and very talented writers, art directors, and they kind of lost that part of themselves and had to find that they were capable of making stuff again. You know how it goes, man, when you get older and yeah. responsibilities and also I think life you're, gets in the way. Yeah. Or I would say maybe life shows you what needs to be changed. I don't believe that life gets in the way. I would say yeah, that life I shows mean, you what needs to be changed. Yeah. I, I probably should rephrase that because I do. I'm think just being that, naughty. No, I actually use that term. Life gets in the way as an excuse or life happened or whatever. Um, That's the victim, yeah. right? Life is happening to me versus I am a man with agency and I take responsibility for what got me here and I am prepared to do what is required to get me out of here. Right. It's similar to the I'm too busy excuse. Uh, I'm too busy to make time for this thing or person that I'm passionate about. Busyness and money are the two biggest bullshit excuses for anyone who does not want to advance things. And I know I sound, I can even hear it in my voice. I'm going to dial back the judgment because I've been that guy. I don't have enough money to do this, or I'm so busy doing this. How could I possibly take on that? So I just want to check myself in this space. <laughs> I'm not above any of the self-reflection that I encourage in others. But I will say that Again, having spent 10 years in the dungeon without my dungeon family, just <laughs> solo, solo, solo in the dungeon, no organized, no organized. They weren't around either, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I would have felt better if they were. But having spent a lot of time in that space, I could also share that the shadow is very sneaky and it will always use time and money to keep you from changing your life. Though, I mean, those are the two default shadow. I have this idea and I want to make it. And the shadows, you don't have enough money. Right. You know, classic stuff. <laughs> right. Right. And I think it's important to, to recognize that. And, and to, that's another version of checking yourself, right? Like the knee jerk would be, 
oh, I don't have time to do this. I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the resources to do this. But even if that pops into your head, maybe the next thought is, but maybe I find a way to do this. I, or I ask a couple of people to help me. Maybe I do some research and figure out how to make this happen. The journey from default, shadow, victimhood, scarcity, hiding, avoidance, to me is like the cosmic story across all dimensions is basically how do I tune into my core and advance my real purpose, my divine purpose? You work with a lot of dudes. All of us say that, right? This one part of me wants to do this, but then there's this other part of me and you can feel their energy dip when it's like this other part of me. Oh yeah. That's, I think that is life. That is the human experience is moving beyond the default victimhood and perceived helplessness of the shadow and into capability, creativity, fun, and connection. And for me, I I know that that's what I'm here to help manifest on earth. I'm doing it through style. I'm doing it through music. I'm doing it through projects. But ultimately, I, I know that that is my mission is to help people out of those lower states of consciousness or lower forms of life and just into areas that feel more fun. Cause look, man, you're a soldier of this work too. You know that when you're in it, I mean, it can be really dire. And I, I did the whole thing solo dolo cause I was broke almost the whole time. So I, I DIY'd the entire thing on YouTube and free Buddhist meditation classes. And I I know what it's like, and I'm sure you do as well, when you're alone in the woods, just real effed up. Trying to figure it out for yourself. Yeah, and and feeling shame that you're going through this. And also not really having anyone to talk about these things with. Because I think a lot of guys in their social circle, maybe it's a little different for the younger cats, but for us, I never talked with any of my homies about that stuff until maybe seven, five years ago when it became yeah. a little bit more. Never talked about all things. I'm cool. Yeah, everything's cool, man. I'm good. Yeah, I think for those of us who are Gen Y and older, it has long been taboo to talk about this stuff. Unless it's with maybe a family member or a romantic partner, a sexual partner. Mm -hmm. So I think that Gen Z and younger millennials, for the most part, have that part really down pat because they're emotionally aware in a way that some of us are not at yet and that it took a lot of us until our 30s and 40s to get to. I do think that we have the benefit of being New Yorkers as well, Mm -hmm. where there are multiple valid versions of masculinity and maybe in some Mm -hmm. other parts of this country and the world, they don't have as many options. And look, even in parts of New York, you know, where I grew up in East Flatbush, like there was one kind of masculinity and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I think that may even exist to an extent. I see it in some of my younger relatives as well. Community and just the idea of having people and leaning on people and 
dudes looking out for each other. It's something that in everybody I talk to, I see the desire for it. But I don't always, and I'm not even sure if I would say I often see the execution. And the reason for that is because it is difficult. And it's difficult logistically. It's difficult emotionally. And it requires, I believe, for someone to be the leader. And again, I don't know if you ever tried Everyman. Do you know what those guys I've heard of Everyman. Yeah, the Everyman Project. I'm familiar. Yeah. So I, I was a part of a group. And so in that model... You're with five dudes every week and there's a prompt, but you kind of get together and talk amongst yourselves and (laughs) without a safe male leader, it very quickly devolved into the pettiest, lowest form of word combat. And so again, to have someone who can lead people who want to be students or disciples or community members, however you want to look at it, to have a space, physical or online, and regularity, I mean, that takes effort and that takes a few people really teaming up to make it happen. But I am very happy to see that over the past seven years, this has become more normalized. Although I do have some pretty profound, well, maybe not profound, I think they're profound, but some key critiques of this model that if men can just talk about their feelings, then we'd be okay. And you mentioned the talk therapy alone not being particularly helpful. And as you talk about it, I'm thinking, and I'm like, okay, talk without action generally is useless. And I'm kind of formulating my thoughts as I'm speaking. I am a huge proponent of therapy, but I think you need to take the things that you unpack and that you learn in therapy and then put those into action. And I do think it is important to have some kind of creative pursuit. I mean, over the last 10 years, I've, you know, I ran a blog, I wrote, I have a podcast, I have multiple podcasts, I have a radio show, I have all this stuff. And that is super helpful. So just to add to your point, it could be a radio show, it could be writing, it could be journaling, but it could also be woodworking, it could be building furniture, it could be putting together puzzles. Anything. Yeah. And the reason that I'm so bullish on projects is that I believe it is impossible to not come up against your stuff when you're manifesting and executing and sharing a project. All of your shadows, all of your voices that are like, this is whack. No one's going to like this. This is going to be bad if you put this out. All that stuff comes out when you're making stuff. No doubt. If you can prove to yourself that you made something and you didn't die, to me, that ultimately is the power that I think talk therapy alone cannot unlock for you because it's just a different, I can't explain it, but it's 
metaphysical, it's magical, it's probably beyond the scope of my limited understanding. But I do believe that when you take essence, vibes, ideas, and you turn them into form, that shows you how much capability and how much of a creator and a master you really are. And I remember in my darkest times, I saw myself as a total victim. I saw myself as a loser. I saw myself as someone who just was a failure and had fallen from grace. And I think that had I worked with someone who just showed me that I have capability and that I could make stuff, I think my journey maybe would have been a little bit shorter and maybe a little bit less miserable. But I just want to be clear. I'm not in any way knocking talk therapy. Of course I'm just saying that my personal opinion is that in order for men to evolve in the ways that we most dream of, which is to be seen, to feel safe, to make stuff, to share it with people, I think that that needs to be tied to a creative act and manifest itself in the physical world. I don't believe it could only be psychological, but that is just some schmuck from Staten Island's opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a valuable opinion. Also, I was trying to figure out a way to work in the fact that you are maybe the third person I've ever met from Staten Island. I've lived in New York for 36 of my 48 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Staten Island still just feels like a like Narnia kind of. Yeah. I found that there's really two subcultures of people that have a lot of Staten Island roots. One is people in the jujitsu community. Second, we're going to go real left turn here. Colonic hydrotherapists. What? Yes. I mean, first of all, do we know enough colonic hydrotherapists to even establish that point? It's a very small scene. (laughs) And two of the most prominent ones that I know are both guys from Staten Island. Really? Actually, three. Three. Wow. Three is a trend. Wow. That is a niche upon niches. Yeah. So I just thought it was an interesting factoid that I picked up. Yeah. I mean, I think of Staten Island. I think of cops. I think of Wu-Tang. And Kevin Devine, I think, was born on Staten Island and ended up. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I believe so. So shout out Kevin Devine. We love you. This isn't meant to sound as as loaded a question as it is. but. My my ears kind of perked up when you're just talking about widening the spectrum of masculine expression. Because you're right, when you're in New York, you grow up and you see and you interact with a lot of people that hit all different notes on that. So I was curious, what is your opinion about ways in which people in our community that are interested in doing men's work and are interested in self-development, what do you think we could do to widen that filter because right now men's work in my opinion kind of gets stereotyped into this like you wear war paint and call each other brother (laughs) and beat on drums and shit which is super dope like i'm not hating but i would just say that if i were looking for direction in life I couldn't resonate with that. And I probably would put off doing the work. 
So I guess my question to you, to the listeners, to everyone in this community is what are some ways that we can make this more accessible and have someone see some of this work and go, oh yeah, that's me. I want to give this a shot. One way I do that is by this, by talking to people who have different perspectives. And look, when I started doing this and began talking to people who specialize in quote unquote men's work, I got that same picture. It was like dudes wearing war paint, going out into the woods, taking their shirts off. And it felt very January 6th to me. (laughs) And I was like, I am not about that life. I am not about that life at all. So I think some of it is uh, listening to, appreciating, and vocalizing alternate perspectives and welcoming other perspectives. So Mm -hmm. much of it is in community. So much of it is in modeling behavior, you know, being the change that you would like to see. There's a million different ways that I think the definition of men's work needs to evolve and we can all contribute to the evolution of it. Because again, I think there are some people who are probably afraid of it or at least side eye it because they equate men's work, A, with hating women, which is 100% not the case. And or they equate it with these wilderness retreats where dudes are doing ayahuasca or whatever it is. I don't know. And if that works for someone, then God bless them, let that work for them. But A, that's not accessible to most of us. Yeah. And I don't think that's what most of us want. Yeah, and also I, I think that literally just being seen by other men and having a look around the room and be like, it's okay that we are men. I think that there is a incredible lack of empathy in this culture for men, especially post Me Too, because people are like, oh, well, y'all are the oppressors. You run the world, right? You are the ones responsible for everything terrible. What problems could you possibly have? And I think that that hit at like the worst possible time because this guy who's like me, the guy living paycheck to paycheck, addicted to porn, smoking weed every night, I'm running the world. I feel like I have no fucking agency at all. And you are not at all empathetic to the fact that I am in pain. And I was talking about this with my homeboy yesterday. People on the quote unquote, progressive side of things, I think have really failed at speaking to men, which is why so many of them just jump over to the right. Because on the left, they say, oh, you're a man, that's terrible. You need to hang that up. You need to suppress that. It's a bad thing. Be Talk more, have better feelings. There's not like, why don't you go to jujitsu and go sweat and get out your energy? That's healthy and that's good. And that doesn't make you a bad guy. But instead, they're demonized for being men. And so the right says, yo, you're a man. Awesome. Fuck women. Not literally, but screw them. They (laughs) suck. It's kind of like the Suge Knight Source Awards. You know what I mean? If you don't want someone telling you that you're all problematic and that you can't have muscles, come Come to the right wing. 
come be on, on team Jordan Peterson. We love you. We accept you. It's cool. And folks on the other side, there's no credible alternative to that. And I think that that's what all of us folks like me and you and the folks listening, that's what we're trying to work through is how can we extend an invite that does not demonize and put dudes on defensive from the jump? Right. Right. And that's a, a fine needle to thread, you know, and one analog would be white people. How do you make sure that people are down for the cause without turning them away and making them feel like you, this one person is responsible for all of the crap that goes on in the world. I, I, I think that's something that is so lost in the discourse today and over the past 10 or so years. And it just has a lot of people lost or confused. Well, it's very difficult to motivate someone out of their own shame. And I think that as a white man, I would say that the intersection of those two identities has led to me considering, okay, I am this and that's okay. How can I engage and leave all this useless shame behind me and actually find a way to be useful? You know what I mean? Because again, if your invitation into men's work is you're bad, you're aggressive, this is scary, you have to suppress anything that a woman might find dangerous, that is not going to motivate someone to want to do this work versus like, hey, you are who you are and you can just be that and we got you and let's get into it, right? Let's support each other. Let's also understand that you being different from me, it's not going to hurt me. And I think that that's a difficult nuance to get across in social media because people are so tribalized and there's this idea that anything that doesn't fall within their little cottage of safety is terrible and this thing that they need to eradicate. And it's like, man, when you're not operating out of those lower frequencies of like fear and judgment and shame, you can allow people to to be who they are and not feel threatened. Right. In fact, you'd probably be excited. I think it's enjoyable to have a spicy life. You know, I won't get into details, but let's just say that I held what at a certain point in time was a very low status opinion about a certain thing going on in the culture. And my homies that were willing to talk and, and hear what I had to say, it actually strengthened our relationship. It made us better friends. It made us love each other more, you know? And I think that if we could stop weaponizing our opinion so much, there's an opportunity to kind of chop it up and see that ultimately we pretty much want the same shit. That is where community comes yeah. in. That is where true community comes in. Yeah. Well, dudes do not excel at maintaining relationships the way that women do. Like, when's the last time you just called the homie up and said, why don't we just bullshit for three hours? They'd be like, I mean, what? I do that. I, I know I, I do that too, but you know, it's, 
this idea of unstructured, quote unquote, non-productive homies time is very alien to most men because we've been groomed to hyper specialize in certain areas to the detriment of everything else, right? And we tend to hyper optimize for work, romantic partner, and children if you have them. And if it's not those three things, people just, and I think that we really suffer, man. Like our, our grandfathers went bowling, you know what I mean? Our pops, they played baseball, they did stuff. And I think that if anyone here is listening and you want to be part of the guys who bullshit and walk around club in New York, hit me, DM me because I'm (laughs) down for this. There's so much value to that stuff. There's so much value to just like, you can go bowling, you can have some sort of social activity, but also just sitting in a room, sitting on a couch, listening to a record, talking to one another, having a discourse, connecting. Yeah. People, I think post COVID especially have sort of lost this idea of we become helicopter parents to our inner childs. Wow. Okay. Right. And so rather than just letting ourselves vibe and be, and just do natural things that you did before the internet, what would you do? You go to a record store, maybe you go see a movie, you go get a taco, right? It was fun. Yeah. You were just, in the moment and life happened and it was cool. And I think, again, this hustle culture, this social media panopticon vibe <laughs> has condemned people to just become so parochial and be like, is this productive? How is this furthering your brand? And it's like, man, that is not a recipe for fun. Right. I'd be so hype if you called me up and said, yo, Els, do you want to just bullshit and go you we could maybe check out a couple thrift stores i'd be like bro yes i've been waiting for you to call yeah and i think i think that if any guys listening maybe can have a takeaway it's like you can do that to three people and i bet one of them will hit you up and it's amazing what comes out of that unstructured (laughs) non-therapeutic but also hella therapeutic male bonding it is super therapeutic. I mean, I, I went over to a buddy's house on Saturday night and his wife had gone somewhere for the evening. So it was me, him and his kid for a little bit. Kid went to bed, but we just hung out and watched the movie and we talked and we bullshitted and it was great. And then his wife came home and we continued the conversation and it was still great. There's so much value in like getting off the fucking phones, not necessarily doing something with the purpose of being productive, but having a moment where you have a soul conversation, you're talking, you're learning from each other, you're connecting, your brain's working in that way. Yeah. And, and also, as I'm sure you can relate as a big music head, sometimes just arguing about records and about producer choices or, yeah. oh, this was whack. That kind of vigorous nerditude, I think, has <laughs> been lost in our kind of digital quick hit thing. I remember I would just walk around with my friends and just have 
it was just an opinion fest about <laughs> oh Pink Floyd, whack. Pink Floyd, dope. Whatever it is. Wu-Tang Forever, terrible. Should have been a single LP. No, amazing. It's their white album. Whatever. And just bullshitting. There's no careerist slant. You're not an influencer. You're not a curator. You're just literally having strong opinions about cartoons and rap music and sneakers and I think that's really been lost because where can you go to do that? Right. You know, I trained jujitsu. I started when I was 40 and I've been on this path for a couple of years now. And you learn a lot about male culture because I mean, women come, but ultimately it's a lot of dudes trying to choke each other and have fun. And the dojo because it exists, that becomes the place where you can come and act all this stuff out and get out some aggression and have a good time and have a sense of humor and just feel loved. I know mean, that sounds weird because jujitsu is like people trying to break your fucking neck, but it's, <laughs> you feel loved. And part of the challenge, I think, for a lot of us is like, we don't have our dojo. We don't have the place where it's like, Come here, we're going to learn some cool shit, we're going to argue, we're going to have fun, and you're going to leave just feeling like, ah, my peoples. Right. I mean, this is kind of stereotypical urban planner jargon, but it's like third space, man. I know it sounds kind of gauche to use this verbiage, but I wish someone would just underwrite a constructive clubhouse for men. The other thing, sorry, I'm kind of on no, one right now. I'm just, the, I'm not like, what does that look like? Yeah, and who, right? I know somebody will sponsor that. The, the other thing, by the way, is just the kind of deterioration of intergenerational male relationships. Mm. Right? Like, I, I really go out of my way now to, to befriend and learn from guys in their 50s, 60s, even 70s. And also to chop it up with guys that are 29, 22, 25. We need that big time. That's again, why a reason why I like jujitsu is because you get a real mix of people, all different backgrounds, all different experiences. And there's just something about having that tribal vibe that really gets lost on the internet. Cause I don't know any 25 year olds are like, oh, let me follow this like 60 year old, you know what I mean? Guy I mean, I, in the suburbs. Yeah. I, you know, that 60 year old would have to be Jay Z, you know? Yeah. 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 Jay Z is not 60. I mean, whatever. <laughs> Mid 50s. Yeah. I love that. Or Ice T. Ice T. Okay. Ice T. Rick yeah. Rubin. Yes. Yes. Rick exactly. Rubin. So that's a fun piece of homework for us is where's the clubhouse? Where's the dojo? I think it's really important to have some sort of salon type event. For Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's where you and I met. Yeah. I mean, sure, music was the focus, but ultimately I was like, yo, anybody who's interested in the life and music, I want to meet these people. And so I was so hyped when we just had a conversation and connected because yeah. again- there was a dojo where we could come and train and build and do our thing. 
right? And men really suffer when we don't get to see the same dudes regularly. I know that sounds hella basic, but man, when I was growing up in the hardcore scene, that was amazing. It's just knowing people from the scene and seeing them, oh, you go to that show? Cool. Yeah. And just knowing that they were going to be there and you were going to be there. And when you get to be our age, that gets lost. And I, I think we lose a lot when you don't see the same dudes regularly. You know? I think you have a really good point. I try to pull my friends together once a month or so just to hang. And sometimes I get pissed off because it's like, oh, this person says they're busy and all this other stuff. But I do think that there needs in every group to be one or two people who are like, I don't care how annoying this is. I'm going to try to pull these people together as much as possible. Yeah. Well, again, right. This goes back to the everyman thing. Someone's got to be the leader. And being the leader does not mean that you're an egomaniac or you're a despot. It just means that you are prepared to lead. And to me, that is a gift, right? When I work with minor geniuses one-on-one, they understand and want my leadership, you know? And that doesn't mean I tell them what to do. Right. And it doesn't mean that I impose my opinions and my judgments on them. It just means that they are coming to me for a specific sort of guidance. And I know that when I allowed myself to be led by men that I trusted, my life opened up in incredible ways because my father does not present as traditionally masculine, you know? He's very laid back. I mean, he taught theater appreciation at John Dewey High School. So he's ahead. He knows about all dope things in the arts, but he wasn't like, I'm going to come and lead you or I'm going to protect you from your mom when she's trying to run the show, you know? And so having men in my life who said, I will lead you was an incredible healing experience for me. Right now that I've learned what it looks like to see true masculine leadership, I take that as a a real privilege and a real responsibility. I know that there are dudes listening that are like, "Yeah, I'm that dude. I could go and lead." And so, be that dude. <laughs> I, I say to you, my friend, be that dude, because you you get the programming how in this culture, people want you to not be that dude, especially if you work in a conventional corporate setting. That's not really cool. You're looked at as being a little bit of an A if you do that. But I would offer that the people that are ready to receive your leadership are here right now. And if you put out the bat signal and you stay with it, (laughs) they will arrive. It just gave me a good jolt of inspiration. Yeah, me too. Okay, so you and I are going to go bullshit and argue about records and maybe look at some clothes. And then after that, we're going to figure out who's subsidizing this intergenerational male clubhouse where you can just come and get some free game. Word. If if anybody out there listening (laughs) has deep deep pockets. Or, yeah, or a rich uncle or however you get it. It wouldn't take very much. I mean, there's more abandoned frontage. We could literally do it in an office building 
that would be psyched to have us one night a week. You know what I mean? No, you're absolutely right. This is fun. This was fun. Like I said, I was so pumped to come on here because I just think that men's work has become so stereotyped and made so self-serious and unfun. Right. And I always love the way your world is so invitational and not self-serious. Like that's what I love about your Substack, which by the way is low key incredible. Oh, thank um, you. It's just you being like, I don't know if this is profound. This is just some shit that I was thinking. Hey, I love that. I love that you give yourself permission to be kind of wildly unfocused, but in a way that also seems very curated. It's, I try not to have any pretense when I'm writing stuff because at the end of the day, it's really for me. So it's the contents of my brain. And if people want to follow along, I mean, I hope that they do, but I'm not going to force anybody into that. It's going to be kind of on my terms. I would love to see 12 of them stapled at Kinko's (laughs) just, just Substack bangers, little zine be tremendous we'll, we'll figure that out yeah. cool. thank you elliot for taking time out of your schedule for uh taking time out of your schedule to sit and chat and thank you for your enthusiasm about sitting and chatting i think when you're excited to talk to somebody that obviously makes the conversation better and i think that is was a great conversation and i hope it is one of many that we have over the ensuing weeks weeks months and years uh if you want to know more about elliot you can follow him on Instagram at minorgenius.xyz. Uh, his website is also minorgenius.xyz. And you can do everything from subscribe to his Substack, which is super, super entertaining, to booking a session. Uh, he's got a specialized playlist, all that good stuff. So check him out. Once again, that is minorgenius.xyz. Thanks again, Elliot. Appreciate you, man.